Welcome, listeners. My name is Jerry, and some time ago I had a podcast with my friend Jeremy called This Is Fine that I'm told was critically acclaimed by all the dozen people that listened to it. That show had to be retired, but after a hiatus from the game, I'm back with a new pod called The Same But Worse, which I'm doing with my friends Marshall Steinbaum and Andrew Hart. It's a podcast about politics, history, philosophy, sociology, and ultimately whether anything can be known, and if so, how. We've been building up a backlog of content, and this is our first official episode. We hope you enjoy it. Um, yeah, so the, the, the basic idea that I, I had, uh, you know, for this kind of like first, I, I want to call this like the first inaugural, the, the real inaugural episode, because I think that's the first one that really has like, um, you know, a plan behind it and, and kind of a thesis um, is that I wanted to start with like, you know, the, the sort of like this contemporary debate about, um, uh, you know, about popularism and uh, sort of all this business of like you know whatever how, how should democrats win votes but not because i want to answer the, that question about like how democrats should win votes i don't think that i mean it, i don't think that's that interesting um and i i don't i don't think like the the practical politics of it are like necessarily something that like are worth discussing as such but what i'm interested more is is in the kind of um in the idea of like how do you know anything about like society right because all of these all these conversations are based on like a conglomerate of uh, of data essentially so a lot some of that data is polling data some of it is like um you know political science studies uh some of it is like you know i don't even know what um some kind of like weird correlational constructions um uh, and 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 everybody you know claims claims that they have data and that their data supports like you know like some particular point of view and I guess the question that I'm interested in is sort of like is it actually possible in this way in the way that like kind of the political science uh, you know uh, the political science professors uh, and their uh, acolytes claim like is it possible to actually know anything in this way um, and what is it possible to know because my like kind of suspicion i guess to lay the cards on the table is i think that a lot of this stuff is really um kind of one step away from just you know reading bird entrails to try to forecast the weather um and it has very little like predictive utility when it comes to trying to figure out like okay what should like what should your politics look like what should your like what should your plan be um all that stuff so um i guess uh I guess yeah, that's where I'm. Um, that's where I'm going with this. I uh, want to know what, what you guys think, and you know, I, I had to upload a couple of uh, things to start with, you know, including the uh, sort of the the shore interview and a couple of uh, political science papers, and you know, just kick it over to you. What do you guys think? Uh, well, I feel as a uh, bona fide so professional social scientist, I've been called out here by Jerry's provocative claims. Um, you know, I am supposedly a professor of at least some of this stuff, and I would be putting myself out of a job if I said that it was unknowable. I think that what Jerry's bringing up that, uh, you know, where that that idea that uh, sort of epistemological nihilism is 
believable, if not certain, is in this, I mean, certainly in the political realm, but uh, altogether this idea that, you know, social science can tell us the answer to some uh uh, conundrum or, or, you know, has very strong normative implications for what should the Democratic Party do this week in terms of what bills to propose or policies to support or how to position itself in the next election. Um, you know, I feel like we're in the sort of up, umpteenth cycle in my life, just in my lifetime of some a uh, young whiz kid political prognosticator being like, you have all of your received wisdom ideas, but I'm the one who's actually read the political science papers, so I know the answers. And without saying that my colleagues in political science don't know what they're talking about, I don't think political science knowledge is is able to be used in that way. And I feel the same way about it, about economics, that it is certainly possible to know how the economy works. That's the endeavor that we're all engaged in. But as to what the normative implications of that knowledge are, you know, it's not like this one weird trick from economics is going to give you the key to how to uh, run economic policy. It's not like a one weird trick from policy research is going to tell you how the Democratic Party should win votes or survive or message or whatever it is that David Shore is being hired to do. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that I, I'm kind of reminded when Jerry was talking about um, kind of setting up the, the question of like how what is the utility or or like how do people use data to to claim to know things or or just any sort of information. I mean, I'm I'm sort of reminded of the David Hume claim that reason is a slave to the passions. That basically, like you know, we people form intentions before they. Uh, and then they exercise their reason downstream of that. And I think that that's just, that's pretty evident in like how data or information is mustered in like political arguments is people have something that they already want to do. Um, you know, I would argue that like centrist liberals, actually the thing that they want to do is to like, you know, to carry out a process as opposed to like reach an end result of that process, which is, I think, you know, definitional of a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of liberalism, uh, which, which sees, you know, the means as an end unto themselves. Um, but, you know, uh, the idea that like somehow we're all just existing in these, you know, we're all just like free floating bodies that could go either way on anything. And like, you know, the data is going to inform our decisions about whether we're going to take a specific position as an individual or, you know, like, I guess, defining the boundaries of what's realistic in terms of, um, like, political outcomes. Uh, I, 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 I think that that kind of has it backwards. I think that, you know, people have pre-existing ideas about what they want, pre-existing ideas, sort of common sense about what they're uh, you know, common sense in the, not not necessarily the ordinary meaning of that term, but like the, the meaning that it's just something that, you know, it's just your inclination one way or another. And I think that's what governs people's decision making, even at the policy level. I don't think that like, you know, I mean, because I, it's also just the case that like, because so many politicians are so process oriented on sort of the, the center center left, uh, I don't think that you can really ascribe any sort of like actual motivation to like the party as a whole. 
which is um which I think just confounds a lot of these narratives about like political narratives, generally speaking, all have to do with like the Democrats want to do this or an individual Democrat wants to do something. But, uh, you know, I think that like the results that you see show that like there's, you know, there's no real end goal in like a policy sense. I think that there's like an end goal in a process sense, if that makes sense, that the Democrats are, are highly invested in like preserving the processes and procedures that underlie the political system and will like do so to what appears to be their detriment. Um, although I, I kind of question if that kind of thinking even makes sense. But, uh, but in light of that, I think that, you know, Marshall's exactly right that it's, it's, it's really difficult to say like, you know, oh, this this data is the one weird trick. This this is going to unlock all the keys, or this is the key that's going to unlock all the locks. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, people who are who have this sort of like poll driven, data data driven outlook on politics, they think it's like incredibly unrealistic to have some kind of big picture future idea to work toward. But I mean, you, you know, it's also the case that like if you're trying to win a bunch of like 50-50 coin flips you know, ad infinitum toward a better world based on like what your polling data shows you gets you to like that 50.1% sliver of whatever it is that's going to, to, to make that decision happen. I mean, once you start getting past a couple coin flips, that's just as dicey a proposition as, uh, you know, as I don't know whether in, 15 or 20 years, there's going to be some major policy change or something like that. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really see that. I don't really see this as like a realistic outlook either. I just, I think it's like a stylistic preference. And it's also like something that, that has a lot to do with this, uh, this process driven approach to politics. Point that you said that, that you're making that, uh, you know, there, it's hard to ascribe motivation to something as amorphous as the Democratic Party and that, uh, you know, sort of like reasoning on the basis of data is downstream of prior motivations, um, you know, insofar as those, I, I mean, they, they seem like contradictory on their surface. I think there's some truth to that. You know, this, I, I mean, it's weird to sort of start with the one polling, uh, the one example, like example of a concrete example of being polling as a means of arriving at certain political outcomes that are like conceived as an aim of some, uh, some entity that has agency, you know, what you're saying about process being the goal is exactly right in this specific case. I mean, you know, this guy who's like suddenly taken the world by storm by saying that Democrats need to do popular things is a professional pollster. So what he, his motivation is having the process be the maximal amount of employment of his services as a pollster. That's that's the motivation here, at least in this specific case. Yeah. In, in order in order to uh, to uh, succeed, you have to buy my magic beans. That's what's going on in that case. I'm I'm fairly confident, and that's also what's going on it, when you get the sort of appeals to economics as the kind of deciding factor in in an optimal policy debate, as against what the what the, the uh, scenario that Andrew raised of like, well, why don't we try to build a political movement to attain attain certain ends that are the uniting 
agenda of this movement. It's like, no, 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 that's not what politics is about. <laughs> you know, it's about like keeping the gravy train going to the various stakeholders that exist within the system. And I think that, you know, insofar as there is a discernible motivation there, that is, that's the motivation. You know, what, what was interesting to me is a sort of like, you know, let's say that, you know, you, you bracket the motivations of, of like the, the institutional players in this story and just like say, okay, like, fine, let's, let's accept that maybe your, your, your motivations are good, even though like, you know, in real, in reality, we know they're not, but like, what, what is, what are you actually like telling us? Like, what are the driving causal elements of this, like of this analysis that you're purporting to show us? And like, the one of the frustration that I'm experiencing in like perusing this literature is that I don't see anybody like, you know, maybe I'm not reading the right people, but I certainly the people who are at the uh, front of, you know, what you might call political advocacy. Uh, I don't see them tying this together in like a sensible way where like these different streams of research or whatever or inquiry are integrated into something that like is actionable right i mean so the example i have in mind here is like this debate i mean there was this debate over like the child tax credit and again like i'm not trying to get into the technical details of the of the tax credit but you know david shore did this polling where he was like well if you means tested at this level you get like x percentage of approval but if you means tested a slightly like lower level you get like you know x plus two percent approval and i just look at that and i'm like okay First of all, like you are asking me to believe that like the public at large has sophisticated and like intelligible views on where the child tax credit should be means tested and that those views also track with their voting patterns. Like like that's the if you are trying to tell me that this is like that you should means test the child tax credit because it, that would be more popular then you are like implicitly making the argument that this is connected to people's voting behavior. But there's just like no evidence to think that that's true. Right. Like I, I almost certainly guarantee you that uh, all the people that were asked about the child tax credit, like had not thought about about it at all until they were asked about it. Like because like, I mean, most people most normal people just don't think about that, right? They have like other things that they think about. And even like lunatics like myself don't think about that most of the time, right? Uh, so it's just like, it's just like, okay, I mean, you have this result. It, it, it doesn't, it hardly means anything. You're, you've moved this needle a few percentage points, but like you were trying to tell me that this needle is connected to something real, right? That like moving this needle will actually produce like genuine, like, shifts in voting behavior and like i don't see any reason to believe that that's true <laughs> and this goes for like so many of these other things where you just look at stuff and you're like well you know this has like like you know whatever the approval metric or whatever whatever you want like wobbles from you know like some low value to some higher value or whatever like it sits in some range but like it's so, so far as I can tell, none of that is connected to like the way that people actually experience politics. So like, it just seems to me that they're like, what's going on here is just like a, like, it's kind of an, a an interesting academic study about what people will say when you corner them in a lab, but it's not really like, it doesn't translate to like a political program. Well, I was going to say, you know, there, there's sort of three different like link critiques that you could make there. You could say, there's no link between people's preferences and the data you're getting. There's no link, you know, assuming that the data is good, there's no necessary link between 
what people think about this particular issue and how they're going to vote. And then I think, you know, most cynically, but I think also, you know, there's actually empirical research that does bear this out that like, even if people vote differently, it doesn't necessarily reflect in like what lawmakers actually do. So, um, so there, but I, I was, I wanted to go back to the sort of the motivations thing. Cause I think sort of like superseding all of this is the fact that like, no one can really articulate in this sort of atomized in, you know, post enlightenment subject, uh, you know, each one of us is the, uh, Lord of our own brains kind of, uh, model of existing in the world as an individual, like what exactly you're supposed to do as an individual, whether that's like an individual voter or going back to the point I was making before Marshall, an individual who's a member of a party, because what I was saying is not necessarily, I think you like, it's perfectly like scrutable, like what people's motivations are as individuals within parties. You know, it's like my, my motivation is, uh, you know, I want to get reelected. My motivation is I want to, you know, stave off a challenge from my left. My motivation is, you know, I want to be the, uh, you know, get the, the, be the only U.S. Senator ever to get the bulk discount from Hot Topic, you know, things like that. But like, uh, but like as a whole, that does, you know, it's sort of like Marx's quote about the, you know, the sack of potatoes or whatever. It's like the Democratic Party is like a complete sack of potatoes. There's, there's, you can't look at its collective action on any of these like, legislative boondoggles is doing and say that like the party as a whole wants anything the party is like this you know completely disjointed uh set of like and i mean it's like it's 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 a trite observation to say that it's like this you know incoherent grouping of like a bunch of different interest groups that all are tugging in different directions and stuff like that but i think that's even a little bit more outmoded i I think that like what we're looking at now is this like everything has become so completely atomized and individualized that it's hard to say like the process by which that forms into any sort of cohesion, whether that's social cohesion or political cohesion within a party. And like, you know, so when people propose like political action or something like that, it's like, what are you going to do? Go out in the streets and protest or something like that. And it's like, well, what does that do? You know, like we don't have any idea of like, it's, it's like all these punches are just so dulled because it's just like a bunch of grains of sand impacting a large beach filled with other grains of sand. And just, it, it, it becomes, I mean, like, and I feel like this is, you know, you can make all those sort of downstream critiques about data, but at the end of the day, it's like, do we exist in a world in which, like, uh, political change can actually, like, operate through people, like, working in tandem, not as individuals, but, like, as parts of a larger whole? And I don't know if that's, I, I mean... At least on a national scale, that seems like it's it's there's not a lot of evidence for it. One of the things that I really wanted to bring in uh, to uh, to this discussion was um, so I've been I've been reading um, this book by Carl Mannheim, um, and which is called Ideology and Utopia. It's like his uh, uh, his uh, master like his masterwork, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, if you don't know who Carl Mannheim is, obviously you should just, uh, you know, you're, we hate you. You are, uh, you are a peasant. You should turn off this podcast and get educated. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it, so Carl Mannheim for, you know, any listeners who, uh, who might not know, uh, was a kind of like a Marxist influenced, uh, German sociologist, actually, actually Hungarian, but he wrote mostly in German. 
um, uh, who like like all um, you know sensible uh, Jews escaped uh, Nazi Germany uh, when he could and uh, settled in uh, settled in England. Uh, he wrote this book in the in the late nineteen. 20s early 30s called ideology and utopia and it's like a really great book because it's got so many like rich nuggets in there uh that i think really like bear on this uh on this discussion uh there i've been just like going through and uh highlighting uh, some of my favorites um you know uh, the, the way that this book starts out by the way it's just it's just great uh the very first sentence is uh or like the very first short paragraph this book is concerned with the problem of how men actually think. The aim of these studies is to investigate not how thinking appears in textbooks on logic, but how it really functions in public life and in politics as an instrument of collective action. So there you go. Like, uh, how, how's that for, um, you know, for a banger of a thesis? Well, and of course, typical of, you know, you know, left political theorists, it's men. How do men think? How do men think? Of course, of course. Yeah. So, you know, I will, I will say that there are things in here which are uh, sort of dated, uh, particularly, uh, I, I would say, you know, not just in terms of, uh, let's say, gender relations, but also in terms of like history. Uh, there are some things here that he says where I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I quite believe that. Um, he's really down on the Middle Ages. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, he but but he I, I think I think his discussion of like uh you, you know the uh stifling uniformity of thought uh during the, the the Middle Ages is maybe a little overblown. I think we know a little bit more about that stuff now and it's not as true. But he's got a lot of lot of important things to say about um you know the uh the number crunchers and their uh um you know and their and their number crunching. In the very first chapter of the book, he talks about the development of like empirical methods for uh you know, for studying sociology and for studying politi politics. And so like, I think this is a, in, entirely recognizable as uh, the advent of things like surveys and, uh, you know, various other social science experiments. Of course, they are not quite as sophisticated in, you know, Mannheim's time as, uh, as they are in ours. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, they are known to him. And, uh, you know, he writes... It is true that much that is new was discovered by the new empirical methods. They enabled us to gain insight into the psychic genesis of many cultural phenomena, but the answers which were brought forward deflected our attention from the fundamental question concerning the existence of mind in the order of reality. Especially was the unity of mind as well as that of the person lost through the functionalization and mechanization of psychic phenomena. A psychology without a psyche cannot take, place, cannot take the place of an ontology. Such a psychology was itself the outcome of the fact that men were attempting to think in framework of categories which strove to negate every evaluation, every trace of common meaning or of total configuration. What may be valuable for a specialized discipline as a research hypothesis may, however, be fatal for the conduct of human beings. Anyway, I, I thought that, that it was I was digging for that quote uh, while Andrew was talking because I thought it was really, really bears on uh, really bears on this discussion. It really drives home kind of the distinction between, OK, like what are you like what you're doing, you know, as a, as a matter of just like formal research and how that actually translates into any kind of like collective action or collective thinking or any of that sort of thing. What makes us think that these are two things that are connected at all? Well, they you might know, not be. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got a you know methodology of positive social science, and then sort of the trappings of those things and some of the same lingo and jargon taking place in the political sphere. And then both Mannheim and us in this conversation are saying like, "Look, you're doing it wrong." But it's like that's not what you're doing. You're not doing the same thing in both in both spheres. You're just using some of the same lingo. 
Yeah, but I mean, but I think the 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 claim that I think a lot of people uh, would be making, right? I mean, at least the way that I read kind of the the, the shorists, uh, if, if I can call them that, uh, to be making is that they are the same thing, right? I mean, like they're making strong positive claims or of, of some sort uh, for their for their discipline and for their for their research. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of like, I guess, approach it from the angle of like taking it seriously, Like I'm not saying I agree with those claims, but I'm saying that I think it's fair to say that they are claiming it. Well, I mean, so I don't take it seriously. I think the right way of understanding that sort of phenomenon is as sort of, you know, certainly as as outward facing propaganda and to some degree as inward facing propaganda. It's like what they tell themselves to justify what they're doing there's no way of obviously like kind of really knowing uh their their internal uh their internal states on this matter like I, i'm trying i'm trying to sort of like arguendo accept the at least the proposition that they're kind of you know let's say they're high in their own supply right and like uh kind of uh you know that they really do believe whatever it is that they're saying right like granted that this is true like like what can, what can we say about it as like a system of thought I mean, as usual, I'm not as uh, uh, as generous a uh, a critic as you may be, Jerry. The generosity does not come because, like, I feel generous towards them, or like even intellectually. It's just that it provides uh, like an interesting uh, jumping off point for like other questions that I'm interested in. Because you could obviously say, and I think I agree, like I agree with you, like a, like in a normative sense. I think a lot of this is bad faith. I think a lot of this is also like just internal posturing for for consumption for the consumption of like other party elites. Like all that is true, but it's like if you start from that premise, then you don't go anywhere, right? You just say like, okay, well, we don't have to take these people seriously. And like I'm saying, like I don't think you have to take these specific people seriously. I'm just trying to like get at the system itself that they are like representing the people who are purporting to do whatever the uh you know the equivalent of i don't know like uh the asimov psychohistory or whatever you want to call it right like they, they i mean maybe they wouldn't make the claim quite that strong but that's kind of kind of how i read them so i'm interested in this as like as like what it tells us about like the knowability of you know social uh social knowledge in general i guess not necessarily in them specifically that's what i'm saying well, that, that way of phrasing it makes it, you know, brings us, I mean, it followed like squarely into the realm of positive social science. And this is not a very good example of positive social science. I don't know if that's the realm we want to operate it, though. I mean, I'm happy to, to talk when, about when that. When you say positive social science, like, what do you mean by that? Well, like, is the social world knowable through the mechanisms by which social science seeks to know it? Yeah, yeah. Like, right, that's, that seems more interesting to me than the question of like, you know, who, how many subscribers does matt's substack have yeah i mean that's a very interesting subject to discuss i'll say one last thing then finally about this entree into it which is you know part of the manheim quote you read is about you know it it, it says you know politics is about uh collective action leading to some sort of political outcome and then these people are here and they misunderstand that it's like they're doing something else they the the, the people manheim is criticizing and their latter-day um uh imitators you know, that's not what they think politics is about. Whatever they think politics is about, it's not uh, collective action seeking to bring about some some change in the world. And, you know, so that so the question is, so it's like, OK, what is so is the social world knowable through the mechanisms by which social scientists seek to know it? You know, 
that is an interesting question on its own account. I would say, and then there's the question of like, is however we would seek to know the world useful to the political endeavor of collective action bringing about some some political outcome? Another interesting question. I would sort of, you know, cleave off the, this particular weaponization of that idea because I just fundamentally don't think that that's what they're engaged in. So it's not useful to engage with it on on those terms. Like, yes, let's talk about whether the social world is knowable. Let's talk about whether knowing the social world is useful in a political sense. Let's not talk about this stupid, we you know, weaponization of the same jargon. Okay, so I, I do want to get back to that. But I, I, I also then want to ask the question of, like, what do you think that they are doing? I guess is the is 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 a is a interesting question and like what do you think they would say that they're doing right because I think that if you ask them they would at least make some sort of positive claim for you know for their profession for their practice whatever it is you want to call it like uh so you know like what do you what do you think it is like that they're actually I mean other than the self-promotion aspect like what do you think that they're actually engaged in like does it does it what's their project look like I think you put it right when you said they're posturing before other elites in a sort of elite status competition that has nothing to do with what we would conceive of as politics. I mean, it's politics in the sense of sort of who's on top in a small little, um, uh, you know, somewhat prestigious and high profile social world. That it's, po it's political in that sense, but it's not about collective action to change the world, to, you know, to, to affect the political system to bring about some change in, the, in, in how the world works. And I would also say like, you know, on some, on some, level they, they'll just tell you what they're doing like you know whichever iteration of the statistics wonderkind uh you know sean mackleby was his thing was called data for progress and it still exists i know but i mean it's like you know this it's a classic like progress is in and of itself its own reward progress toward yeah. what well who the hell knows you know uh the, the important thing is we're just on the treadmill and we're just well, doing look, the process I mean, making data-informed decisions like if we're going to dwell in this world, you know, I met David Shore. I met him at a bar with Sean McElwee and, and Matt Iglesias. And they're all engaged in the same endeavor, which is elite posturing. And moreover, the, the premise behind data for progress is, as far as I can tell, antithetical to what Shore stands for. So I don't understand how they're like seemingly still friends and, uh, uh, you know, like part of the same coterie, because I really don't get what's going on. The premise of data for progress was polling is bullshit. So what we're going to do is come up with polls that just say that whatever our agenda is, is popular. And then the way that pollsters exert so much influence in Democratic Party and, and affiliated, you know, uh, agenda setting is because that's, you know, every every corporate interest or whatever has their pollster say that their agenda is popular and that you'll die if you pursue a progressive agenda. So we're just gonna be the poster that says the opposite of that, that you'll die if you pursue a corporatist agenda. As far as I'm concerned, that's a perfectly defensible way to engage with the political system. It's an accurate reading of the, the political economy of pollsters in the Democratic Party infrastructure and apparatus, and it's appropriately cynical. Sure is like public opinion is prior to all knowable fact about the world. And I, I, the unique, you know, guy with a crystal ball or whatever, you know, access to the greatest polling data am the one who, as you say, you know, could sell you the magic beans that will tell you what public opinion is and therefore map out the route, you know, the normative political path that you should travel down. And like, that's the opposite of what Data for Progress was about. <laughs> so I don't know where, yeah. things, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they've all basically gone down the rabbit hole of 
you know, I would like fat consulting contracts from the interest that that pour money into the Democratic Party because they're anxious about Trump or whatever it is that that, you know, funds wealthy people to just piss their money away. Yeah. And I mean, I would credit the idea that, like, you know, the common the, the, the main commonality between uh, all of this, uh, you know, every iteration of the stats boy who comes along is that eventually they become you know, interested in that sort of elite signaling that allows them to, you know, ride the crest of the wave for as long as they possibly can and get lucrative contracts for as long as they can. And, and that does seem to be the, the sort of the, the common feature of all these things. But I think on some level, they're also all doing the same thing, even if the way they do it is a little bit different and it, it, in a more future oriented way, I guess, or, or like more, I guess, I don't even know what you'd call it, but it's 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 not necessarily uh, completely pointed at self interest, but it's all it's all about like upholding some kind of process by which you know the 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 the, the widgets that they produce the the polling data, um, y- you know goes into this into the politics machine and then the good politics come out of it, um, and honestly like you know, it's sometimes kind of unclear, like what I was suggesting with data for progress, even inherent in the name, it's not even necessarily clear. It's almost like it maybe is supposed to go without saying what the progress is or like what, you know, what the good politics that are supposed to come out the other side are. But like, you know, really at the end of the day, what it's about is creating this assembly line style of politics where, you, where yeah, where you just put the data in the machine and then, then the politics machine does this work and the, you know, dun, 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 all that, that music plays. And then at the end, you got like the little, you know, machine stamping out the good policies or whatever. And, uh, but, y- you know, uh, this, this whole focus on politics is about the process to get there, not necessarily about like what the things that are being stamped on the end of the assembly line are. Yeah, that, of course not. Guys, progress is when the progress index goes up. I, I, what is so hard about this? That uh, anecdote about like, oh, you know, more stringent means testing of the child tax credit gets you four points of public opinion says that as clearly as anything would. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, if <laughs> on some level, they are really just doing the thing we were talking about previously, which is like managing to the measure, basically, as opposed to having some sort of clear, articulable goal in mind. Uh, they have a metric that says, you know, my poll is good when it does this. And then, you know, they're giving it to someone whose job it is to say my policy is good because the metric of the poll says it's good. So you get this sort of like, you know, metrics based, uh, you know, new labor style management system, like all the way down. Guys, I have ba- I have I have terrible news for both of you. Oh, no. I uh, oh, no. just just now got a notification on my phone for the new episode of the left anchor podcast on popularism with alex perine okay well that that's fine you know uh i think that this is uh uh you know it's good for uh, for people to you know take different angles on this and uh, (laughs) you you welcome competition i shun it this idea of like the politics machine by the way is like it's very interesting to me i I like that you said that because when, when you have a machine usually like you know if you are good like at machines you can specify how the machine works and you can like specify how the machine like takes the inputs and transforms them into outputs um and this is like one of my main like problems with this whole practice i guess is that like they don't really specify how this is supposed to how this is supposed to happen like they're just like well uh if you if you if you talk like barack obama talked in 2012 somehow 
this will be transmuted into like votes, I guess. But it's just like it's like totally divorced from any like notion of like context or the evolution of politics since 2012. Like it's been eight years, guys. Like things have changed. You know, even if you like even if you think it's desirable for like democratic politicians to talk at Barack Obama in 2012 it's like there's no mechanistic like way that that is going to turn the voting public into the voting public of 2012 it's just like that 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 public is gone I mean 2012 is being generous to these people if you read the shorter interview he says you know I was the the uh you know data young uh uh uh, data guy on the on the 2012 Obama campaign and like we were fighting with the dinosaur consultants who'd worked for Clinton in the 90s and they were telling us like oh we don't believe your data uh you know in reality the electorate hates black people so that's so you you have to hate black people as part of your campaign and Shore basically says you know I thought they were uh, uh ignorant dinosaurs who hadn't kept up with the changing times then but now I think they're right it's weird to me how like you fought so hard to climb this mountain and you've climbed to the top and like you have you have become the 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 people that you vanquished along the way. Like, shouldn't that give you some pause? Right. I mean, it seems, you know, like in some ways this is like better treated in fiction than in fact, because, yeah, like it's a good reason why they're the same as the people they displaced, because you wouldn't have climbed the mountain if you remained different from the people who occupy. You have to like take on the persona of the people at the top of the mountain. That's what the people at the top of the mountain say. In this case, Democratic well, Party politics, say- you have to stamp down the left and can't you can't allow, you know, too many black people uh, you know, to to like populate the public image of your party. That's that's the, you know, and it's like sure basically wants to be on top and so he'll adopt that persona. I mean, I do think that there's actually some pretty strong data, like if you run some regression analyses on talking like Barack Obama in 2012, because I feel like a lot of the people who've done that are, uh, have become secretary of transportation. Oh yeah. I, I, the, <laughs> uh, I, I, so like in the course, in the court, I mean, this is just like a funny anecdote, but I, I, I put this in the, this, uh, documentation in the, in the, like the shared resources folder, but like in the course of like kind of gathering my materials, I remember that there was this like one tweet from, uh, actually I wasn't sure himself. Like it was uh, this guy, Matt Grossman, who's like a political scientist at Michigan state. I think he, he tweeted about, he tweeted out this like thesis that was, that just came out, I guess, in this year, uh, by somebody from UCLA. And the thesis had to do with basically like how, uh, like the different, the changes in the ways that like Democrats and Republicans have like, uh, the rhetoric that they've been using and how like she thinks that this drives like effective polarization. Uh, but the funny thing about this is that if you dig into it, it's word count data essentially from uh, the party platforms, but it's literally just like a list of like terms that she put together where she was like, well, this term means that like Democrats are talking more about racial minorities. And this other term means that like Republicans are talking about liberals. She just like did a word count of those things and then like plotted them on a chart. I was like, this doesn't mean anything. You can't like take this to the bank. You can't cash it out in terms of like any sort of political program because it's, it's just like, it's just like, these are just word counts that you did based on your own criteria. They don't reflect anything about the underlying political context in any of the things that you're studying. 
I don't know. Like it has no no connection, no sensible connection that I can see to like a genuine either like a political program or like a proper analysis of like what is actually happening like in politics. Well, th- this sort of brings us back to the realm of is the social world knowable and is the the uh, methodology by which social scientists seek to know it a way of getting at its truths. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, uh, research of um, uh, uh, Shapiro and Jenskow uh, about political polarization. It sounds like what you're describing, that thesis is informed by the research. So they're basically saying you can measure polarization by the usage of certain words. And it's a little bit better than I say these words are more polarized than these other words. It's like, you know, trying to uh, like anchor the words that are used to the political identity of the people using them and then seeing who in the media uses those words, um, you know, to measure polarization in the media. Anyway, their big conclusion from, from this methodology is that media has only become more polarized in response to the polarization of the electorate and not the reverse. And so, you know, as an example, like, and, and those authors are not seeking to uh, use their research to like affect political outcomes. So I do think that like their effort is more in the realm of social science than what we've been talking about mostly in this conversation to date. But I, I, I you know, not, notwithstanding that, I think it fails fundamentally. I mean, we have other methodologies that show polarization being driven by media content and propaganda. And like the, the, the methodology employed by those authors, I think is like just unsuited to the task where what economists conceptualize as preferences are not stable over time. For sure. So, you know, it's got to, you got to have to, you know, like to, to make that methodology work, you have to say like, there's, be- there's like beliefs that are properties of people. And then there's language that is properties of media organizations or something like that. And, you know, the, 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 and then the sort of the hypothesis that you're testing is like, you know, the, uh, beliefs uh, that the the language employed by media organizations is either posterior to the beliefs of people or the reverse something like that and they and they you know the the hypothesis that they end up endorsing is that um uh uh the language used by media companies is posterior to the polarization of human beings but like that very like stark uh methodological individualism you know isn't suited to studying the subject that they're setting out to study and so like we have other uh, other uh, information from, you know, non-economic type of social sciences, like, you know, kind of more uh, what might be called big data, I don't know if it's like data science or something like that, that's like, oh, you know, you can see people migrating and adopting different behaviors as a result of what uh, uh, media uh, and information they're exposed to that's just like better suited to answering that question. You know, going back to sort of the original questions that you were asking, that that Mannheim was asking, you know, basically like, I don't, could you could you reread like the you know the, the sort of the big epistemological questions that he poses? Right. Are you talking about the paragraph at the very beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where he basically just says like, "Can we know anything at all?" Yeah. So I mean, the the very the very first paragraph that he starts with is he says, "This book is concerned with the problem of how men actually think." The aim of these studies is to investigate not how thinking appears in textbooks on logic, but how it really functions in public life and in politics as an instrument of collective action. Is that is that was that the thing that you were? Sorry, it was uh, it was gorgeous. It, the gorgeous. Oh yeah 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 the gorgeous yeah yeah that's right. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a uh, uh, you know that's something that I believe he's reputed to have said. I you know I, I haven't actually verified whether he uh, what, said it. What or exactly not. did he say? Again? Well, he said. Uh, I mean, I believe I believe the the phrase was that nothing nothing exists. Even if anything exists, it can't be known, uh, and even if it can be known, it can't be communicated. So uh, yeah, we're really uh, we're really stuck here. If you believe Gorgeous, it's interesting because it's like okay, so I. I actually am sort of agnostic on the question of whether anything exists. You know, I don't, I actually don't think that's knowable, but I, I, I do think that like the, the latter two questions seem to me to just to be, just to be true. And you, it's interesting because like, I think the metaphysics, if you're, if you don't want to sort of hand wave the metaphysics of it, it's actually quite kind of difficult to, to like walk through these kinds of arguments, you know, because you always get the person who, who does the, does the Dr. Johnson and kicks the rock or whatever. And they say, well, you know, are you going to deny that this table exists? And it's like, well, okay, look, it's a courtesy that we extend each other that we don't deny the existence of this table. But, you know, you bring in someone who's fundamental, like religious or philosophical beliefs in, in involve like the non-existence of material reality, and they will vehemently deny the existence of it because it's like a live issue to them. And, you know, then it becomes very difficult to figure out to what external authority can we like actually resort to settle this question between, you know, two people who you know, at least in our sort of framework, are masters of their own minds. They can think whatever they want. These kinds of arguments, I think, they usually get paired up on the back end with either a really stupid, simple argument or some kind of argument that says one needs to do all of this uh, very complicated sort of empirical studies of, of X, Y, and Z and to figure out the correlations and the polls and the statistics and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that, like, you know, the difficulties of metaphysics and uh, and epistemology, like from that follows that one must make like a really trite argument or that like one must do like a ton of empirical work to do something that, like I said at the beginning, I think probably is subsequent to uh, a prior idea about what one wanted to do or think in the first place. And I think, you know, the real problem that, like, I think that all this kind of stuff runs into with uh, when it's applied to politics is that, like, it's very simple that, you know, something that people don't really like, and this is, like, true pretty much across everybody, is when they perceive that you're saying something for a reason, but the reason that you're giving for, giving for saying it isn't what they really think your reason is for it. And the, the problem with like any sort of public reason, which, you know, we've really translated the, like this Rawlsian concept of public reason into like a spreadsheet, basically. We've said that like the only way we can actually meet uh, in our own, our own special minds can like meet in a common ground is like polling data and correlations and, you know, the abstracts of, uh, you know, work that quite frankly, like, you know, the people who do it on the politics side probably don't really understand that well to begin with. But um, and, and so what I, all I'm going to say is, it's like, it seems to be that like, as a political, you know, if, so, if one really were interested in political outcomes or just political progress in the abstract, which I'm pretty skeptical of that as just a notion, but I mean, whatever, um, you know, I don't think one would, would like reach for as, you know, your first choice for like a strategy, like let's just win a bunch of coin flips in a row. And the way we'll do it is we'll want to do one thing and then we'll say we want to do that, but not for the reason that we really want to do it. And it'll be also like facially obvious to everyone else that like the reasons that we want to do this are not the reasons that we're stating. 
And so, you know, to me, like, this is like the ultimate thing is it's like, okay, I, I'm very skeptical of the idea that like, you know, people who, who do this, who, who op operate in this mode of reasoning, like have the very best faith at the center of their motivations for doing so. But even to the extent that they have some good faith, that they really do want certain kinds of outcomes, it seems to me that like, this is just a completely foolish way of doing it. And in fact, like, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that like the, the cudgel that they reach for when they're trying to argue with someone who actually has like firm convictions in mind is to say, oh, you're just a utopian, you're unrealistic, you'll never get that done. It's like, okay, really, you're gonna win 15 coin flips in a row by lying to people? We're, we're gonna lie to the voters, but we're gonna do it really badly so that they can tell we're lying. I, I just like, as, as you were talking, exactly. and as NS Marshall was talking, I, I had it's like, I have this Mannheim bit queued up, which is like just so perfect for this. Um, anyway, here he goes. We have already shown elsewhere that the development of modern science led to the growth of a technique of thought by means of which all that was only meaningfully intelligible was excluded. Behaviorism has pushed to the foreground this tendency toward concentration on entirely externally perceivable reactions and has sought to construct a world of facts in which there will exist only measurable data, only correlations between series of factors in which the degree of probability of modes of behavior in certain situations will be predictable. It is possible and even probable that sociology must pass through this stage in which its contents will undergo a mechanistic dehumanization and formalization, just as psychology did, so that out of devotion to an ideal of narrow exactitude, nothing will remain except statistical data, tests, surveys, etc., and in the end, every significant formulation of a problem will be excluded. All that can be said here is that this reduction of everything to a measurable or inventory-like describability is significant as a serious attempt to determine what is unambiguously ascertainable, and further, to think through what becomes of our psychic and social world when it is restricted to purely externally measurable relationships. There can be no longer any doubt that no real penetration into social reality is possible through this approach. I mean, like, I think he had this, these guys number like a hundred years ago. You know, there's a language of progress in there too. And it says, you know, it, it, it's sort of as a lot of early 20th century and late 19th century things like to do deposit like a sort of not necessarily cyclical, but like a theory of stages of upbuilding towards some kind of um, like supervening outcome of, you know, some kind of human process. But the thing that I'm struck by is, and I, Jerry, I read you this quote after Marshall left last time, but I'll read a, sh a shorter version of it now, which is a, you know, a quote, a quote from Edmund Burke, where he's talking about the death of Marie Antoinette. And he says, I thought 10,000 swords must have leaped from their scabbards to avenge even a look that threatened her with insult. But the age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. The thing that I'm struck by is like, first of all, aside from the stuff about the glory of Europe and the subject being Marie Antoinette, like <laughs> that is the fundamental sentiment of, you know, a lot of these sort of left sociologists like Mannheim. And you'll you'll you still see this. There's a sense of sentimentality in a lot of left writings, because I think what it's longing for is like, it looks back at a previous form of a subject and it says that like our form of subject is being forever divided and made um, like incompatible with the kinds of actions I would like to see in the world. And like the only model from which to like look and, and try to figure out like what would a subject look like that actually had a different form of subjectivity 
you know, once we sort of pass through this stage, it's very difficult to sort of imagine hypothetically what that could look like. It's very easy to sort of look back a certain number of years and say in the 70s, you know, it was it was better because we had a stronger labor and people really felt the sense that like, you know, there was this tripartite division and by golly, we were all in it together and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, in the seventies, it was looking back, uh, you know, maybe a, a generation or two earlier and saying, well, you know, look, uh, if we're on the, the real avant-garde of the left, like, you know, the revolutionary age has passed. We don't have a revolutionary subject anymore. We have uh, sort of a compromise subject that is, you know, in this, this tripartite bargain with the state. And I mean, you know, maybe in terms of the the ages of revolutions and it was looking back, well, I, I don't know, maybe at that point they didn't have these problems with subjectivity and they didn't really think about it in that way. Um, but I'm struck by the fact that like, there is this sort of tendency in, in sort of, uh, especially in Marxist inflected writings to kind of ascribe uh, a certain, um, to fit sort of this model of, you know, it's just, it's, it, we're, we're going, we're going past, we're going past what we're going to do. And we don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be different. Um, and then, you know, there's certain degrees of like inevitability of, of those kinds of theories, depending on like how, I guess, one reads Marx uh, and sort of applies that, the, the upbuilding model um, and stages of history and all that kind of stuff, which I personally don't really think that there's a lot of uh, reason to believe that, that these things are necessarily going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's an interesting problem. And I, I, I guess I didn't really land on anything interesting to say here other than, you know, it's, it's clear that like, there is something to the idea that like, the way we think and the way that we operate in the world as people in 2021 is actually, there's something that makes it difficult for us to like, um, there's something about that that makes it difficult for us to like, to do the things that I guess people, to do these kinds of like concrete political aims. And that like, it's much easier to imagine us all as grains of sand, just sort of lumping together in different formations uh, based on polling data and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, um, and I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing to, to have this kind of, conservative sentimentalism and say that like, you know, if we, if we just could learn a little bit from the past about the things that we did, the ways that we were before, maybe we could recapture some of that and that could kind of help us push through. Or if that's just sort of, you know, fundamentally reactionary and like ineffective. But, um, but I, I, I do think that this is, you know, thinking about it, our individual subjectivity is like worth doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, like, you know, Mannheim is worth reading on this because I think he is, you know, uh, grappling very directly with with precisely these questions. And I think that, you know, he's uh, trying not to be, I think, a sentimentalist, although he, he, you know, he does talk about how sort of this advent of the mechanistic interpretation of society, obviously kind of like, you know, uh, you know, it broke the, um, you know, what he calls like the kind of the uh, unity of uh, medieval thought, which, you know, again, uh, as, as per my caveats before i think you know we're all now much more familiar with the you know the notion that medieval thought was much more diverse than uh previously imagined but nevertheless you know this is the construct that that manheim has kind of built up in his uh uh in, in his argument i think there's something to it right i mean there there was a certain kind of unity i think that you could feel sentimental about and maybe want to try to recapture but you know that like you know, in the course of trying to understand society kind of as it is, you you pass through this developmental stage 
um, where uh, this this mechanization, this process of mechanization happens. Uh, but then you get to the other side of it and you realize that like, oh, actually, like that process didn't capture the important things that we really care about. Right. It didn't capture like the psychic life of society that we really want to get at and that other methods are are necessary. But that's not to say that this is a nostalgia for uh, like an older, you know, for an older regime. It's really a try, an, an attempt at a synthesis between kind of the, the necessity of like the formalism on the one hand and like the sort of like that psychic component on the other. Guys, I'm afraid I have to head out again. <laughs> no problem. Adios. We had to say goodbye to Marshall, so we'll end the episode there, but there's even more content coming after the cut, which is mostly Andrew and I having a more free-form conversation on the same themes. That'll be available shortly, and in a week or so we'll be back with a discussion of whether economics is a complete fraud science, or whether anything can be salvaged from, from the smoldering wreckage left by a recent paper published by the Federal Reserve. Till next time, thanks for listening.